All right, good morning, everybody. Welcome to Amen in the wonderful month of May. It's good to be together. I have to confess that this morning, uh, the song that we just sang did come to mind as I was studying Jude, and I'll tell you a little bit more about that in a minute, but it wasn't the first song that came to mind. Uh, I had a flashback to high school, my junior year, and it was the junior-senior prom. And the junior class put on the prom for the senior class, and so everybody's there, and it's a great, we had a great band that year, I'm really happy to report. But the band kind of got off script, it seemed like to me, on this one song, and instead of playing the R&B, which they had been playing, which was great, they, they broke into uh, the Beatles' Hey Jude, and uh, they sang the whole Hey Jude. I've had a trauma, I don't think I've ever really gone back to Jude uh, since then, I have a little aversion to Jude, because... What happened in the midst of that song is they got up to the end of it, they do the chorus over and over again, and they were looking for a volunteer who wants the mic out there. Well, nobody wanted the mic, no one wanted to sing. And uh, we had a very good football team that year, and the seniors on that team, I was a junior on that team, the seniors on that team uh, were big. I mean, we had an offensive line that back then averaged over 200 pounds. That was kind of unusual for a small little school in Knoxville, Tennessee. But anyway, what they did was they just picked me up and I'm pushing against the stage with my feet like that, which was a mistake because as soon as I put my felt, they just pushed me right on up. I just kind of whoop. And here I am singing, Hey Jude. And that was not a happy memory. I don't have a really, I don't think I was in the key of whatever. I just, uh, and they all had fun. They all laughed. They thought that was great. But you can understand them a little bit like, I'm not sure I want to go back to the book of Jude because of that. Well, then the way your memory fires, I've got this other memory. And I told you about the school I went to before and how we sang uh, in chapel, Faith of Our Fathers, Holy Face, We Will Be True. And my friend that uh, had the complexion problem. And, and so people would snicker and change the name of Faith of Our Fathers to Face of Our Fathers because of Face, the guy that we talked about. Um, it's just funny what you remember. That was a powerful connection for me. All right, well, I remember this hymn from that same setting. It's a bunch of guys in a boys' school at that time who were singing, Stand Up, Stand Up for Jesus. Um, when's the last time you sang, Stand Up, Stand Up for Jesus? I'm guessing it's been a long time. In fact, I was nervous in recommending that hymn to start our study of Jude because I knew there would be guys in here who had never sung Stand Up, Stand Up for Jesus, probably younger guys. There are two reasons that we don't sing Stand Up, Stand Up for Jesus much anymore. First, ye that are men now serve him. Uh, that, that's gone by the wayside. We don't really like the gender-specific language. It sounds manly, masculine. It's just for men. So the only place you can really sing it now is, oh, in a men's Bible study. Amen. We can sing it here. So I thought that's a good reason to sing it. And the other reason that it has gone by the wayside, in fact, some denominational hymn, hymnals have excised it because of its militant tone, because of the army metaphors and this um, the idea that there is a connection between warfare and Christianity uh, is abhorrent to many people today. And should be abhorrent if we're thinking of physical warfare because we're not called upon to go into pitched battle uh, for the sake of Christianity as they did in the Crusades. That's not our calling. The weapons of our warfare are not material weapons. Our coercion is not a physical coercion to people. Rather, we try to persuade people of the truth of the gospel 
by our words and by our deeds, but not by a physical force. So I get that there is uh, some aversion to going with stand up, stand up for Jesus, you soldiers of the cross. And yet, I hope that you all have not forgotten that we are soldiers of the cross, that it was the Apostle Paul who said, endure hardship with us like good soldiers of Christ Jesus. It was he who equipped us for battle with all of the armor that is described in Ephesians chapter 6. So I hope that you will be able to take this journey with me this morning away from sort of the sanitized Christianity, from the feminized Christianity to um, a Christianity that is biblical. So we're going to avoid the excesses that cause people to react against stand up, stand up for Jesus. And we're just going to try to remember the truth that is in, behind that hymn a hymn that fits very well with the letter of Jude. It's the last of the general epistles, the last of the letters for the brothers, this whole series that we've worked on this year in Amen on the Catholic epistles, the general epistles. Well, Jude is the end of the line, and after that, Revelation comes, and that's a whole different genre of the New Testament. But with this genre, we come to the book of Jude, and I think that we can deeply identify with it. It's very germane to our day and age um, right now. It's very, very appropriate. And it's my prayer that each one of us will apply the book of Jude to our lives today. I, I, I feel like I will have wasted your time and mine if I tell you a lot about the book of Jude without our making a concerted effort in our meditation So, Lord how does the message of Jude impact my life today? Or how should it? How do you want it to? If we leave without answering that question, we will be just what James, another general epistle, describes as those who are hearers of the word and hearers only and not doers. And we need to do what we've heard. So we've been prayed for to that end, and I'm grateful to Dan for that. We have a marvelous letter before us. So let's jump into it. And what do you do when you come to a letter? First thing, you, you haven't even opened it yet. All you've got is an envelope. And so you think, well, who cares about the envelope? I just open it. No, you do not. There's not a man here who just rips open an envelope without looking at, is this addressed right? Is this my neighbor's letter once again? Hey, they always get in the neighbor's mail. Yeah, they got the number wrong or wrong street. We used to get... You know, we were 3930 back in North Carolina, 3930 St. Mark's Road. We got mail all the time for 3930 Northbrook. And it was just like, and ended up being great. We met the people there, and uh, the wife became a Christian through it all. So it was pretty awesome that had happened. So you're looking at the address, just making sure. You're looking at the return address for sure. Is this worth my time? Is this junk mail? Or is this a personal letter coming from, oh, I know that person. Or, no, I don't know that person. It matters to you, the return address, the address. And then I guess technically it's not part of the, the envelope per se, but at the very beginning of the letter, often there is a subject line, especially men get letters with a subject line because they know these guys can't follow an extended argument. They're not going to remember diddly squat about what this letter Let's just put it for them in one line. Here is what this letter is about, and we are drawn to that. Well, we can thank God that Jude did that for us. Put it all in the envelope. And so in uh, the first three verses uh, of this letter, we're going to uh, find the envelope of the letter. And the envelope is going to tell us whom it's from. From whom are we receiving this letter? Jude, 
a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James. Does that help us identify him? Absolutely. A servant of Jesus Christ, I mean, that could be anybody. You wouldn't expect to be getting a letter in the New Testament from anyone other than a servant of Jesus Christ. That's true. That doesn't help narrow it down very much. But you know what narrows it down quite a bit? It narrows it down that it is from a brother of James. You think, well, really? Isn't James a pretty popular name in the New Testament times, for, especially for Jewish people? And you're right, it is, because James is just the English form of Jacob. And Jacob, of course, was the patriarch of Israel. In fact, his name was Israel. His name was changed from Jacob to Israel. And so Jacob was highly regarded, highly revered in Judaism in the first century. So that isn't going to help us a lot. We've got Jacob. Everybody's named Jacob. All kinds of people named Jacob or James in our English version. Well, okay, but think about it. How many people can address a letter like this confident that it will get there? To blank, I won't tell you who it is yet, but you'll know. Minneapolis, Minnesota. No zip code, no street address, no post office box, just blank. Minneapolis, Minnesota, and it'll get there. Not Santa Claus, no, that was not right. Uh, Billy Graham. Oh, yeah, if you, all you got to do is just send it to Billy Graham, Minneapolis, Minnesota. It'll get there. They know it. And uh, I guess that's still true. I know it was true when at the height of his crusades and everything. So here we're looking for that kind of address because who's going to know who the brother of James? I mean, that could be anybody. No, not really. There are only a few Jameses that are prominent uh, in the New Testament. There are two apostles by the name of James. One of them is obscure, James the son of Alphaeus. The other is better known, James the brother of John. And that James is the son of Zebedee. But now here's an important thing to note about that James. In the 40s of the common era, the 40s in the time of Christ, uh, that James died. He was killed by Herod Agrippa. He was put to death, and therefore he's not around anymore. So we got James and John, the sons of Zebedee. Well, we only have one son of Zebedee after around 44 uh, CE, and that's it. So that James is off the table here because we think that the date for this letter is in the 60s of the first century, somewhere in the 60s. Could be up to 80, depends on the direction of the borrowing between 2 Peter and Jude. They're very similar. 2 Peter 2 and Jude are very, very similar. But who's borrowing from whom is the question. And it doesn't really matter too much for our interpretation of the letter, but I suggest that Peter is actually going to borrow from Jude, in which case Jude needed to be writing in 60-something because Peter dies in the 60s in Rome. If it's the other way, it could be later. It could be 80-something, and he's borrowing from Peter. So I'll let you study that one on your own. Nevertheless, Jude who is a servant, a slave even, of the Lord Jesus and the brother of James. So if it's not James, son of Alphaeus, it's not James, the brother of John, the son of Zebedee, who could it be? Well, there is a James who is very prominent in the New Testament. He is the leader of the church in Jerusalem, particularly by the time of the Jerusalem Council in Acts chapter 15, where the whole church comes together to debate the question, do you have to become Jewish first before you can become a Christian. 
This is a very intense question now that the Gentiles are beginning to come to faith in Christ. And Paul is very insistent that you do not need to become Jewish before you can become Christian. You do not have to be circumcised. In fact, if you are circumcised, you might as well go the whole way and emasculate yourself because you are not understanding the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. None of your works of the law and compliance are going to earn you heaven. And if you're a Gentile, no, you need to understand the good news that the God who made you also has saved you through his son who he sent in the perfect time, prepared perfectly from Old Testament prophecies and for all the conditions to come together. You need to put your faith in Jesus. And that's it. Put your faith in Jesus. Don't try to follow all the Old Testament ceremonial law. It's all been fulfilled in Jesus. So that, that's it. That's what you need to know. It's, it's all about Jesus for the Gentiles. Well, there were others, and they thought, no, 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 that's not true. No, the Gentiles, are you talking about the same immoral, stinking Gentiles that I'm talking about? No, 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 they cannot become Christians without coming over to our Jewish laws and, and doing all of that. So they had this general council in Jerusalem in Acts chapter 15 to debate the question. Paul's preparation for that Jerusalem council is contained for us in the book of Galatians. And so he's writing to those that he had spoken to, those Gentiles on his first missionary journey, telling them, hey, this is what's at stake with the gospel. If you do not trust in circumcision. That is not going to get you to heaven. You do not need to be circumcised. And he has taken Timothy and Titus with him on a previous visit to Jerusalem. And he, uh, he did not have Titus circumcised. And the leaders of the church in Jerusalem did not require Titus to be circumcised, even though he was Gentile and he was with Paul. And who are those leaders? Well, James was one of them. And that James is not an apostle, or he, he is not known as one of the 12. In fact, during the life of Jesus, that James didn't even believe in Jesus. That James is mentioned in Matthew 13 and Mark 9 as the brother of Jesus. Jesus had at least four brothers that are listed in those two passages and a couple of sisters as well. And in the, that list of those four brothers, one of them is James and the other one is Judas. Well, Judas is at least the Greek form. Judah would be the Hebrew form. And Jude is the way practically every English translator has translated it. Why? It's pretty obvious. You don't want this guy to be confused at all with Judas, the traitor, the one who betrayed Jesus. So translators have steered away from Judas and just gone with Jude. And so that's how we get this name. Jude is writing this letter. This Jude is a half-brother of the Lord Jesus Christ, the son of the Virgin Mary. Why didn't he just say that? Why couldn't he just say it? It's Jude half-brother of Jesus, and therefore, listen to me, I'm tight with Jesus. You don't want to get crossways with me. He didn't do that because something had happened in his life that was very significant. He had passed from unbelief to belief. Remember in John chapter 7 when uh, Jesus is speaking with his brothers, his brother's like, go on down to the feast, Jesus. You're all this big rage. Everybody's going to want to see you coming up into Jerusalem. Oh, yeah, it's time for you to go down there. And Jesus says, look, it's not my time now. I'm not going right now, and, uh, but thank you. And his brothers are giving him a hard time because, John says, his brothers did not believe in him. They were scoffing him. 
They came on another occasion with Mary, the brother, to take him home because they thought he was crazy. Jesus was so busy, he didn't even have time to eat, we learn in Mark. And consequently, they came to take possession of him. And they said, your mother and your brothers are outside, Jesus. And Jesus said, who are my mother and my brothers? It is those who hear God's word and do it are my mothers and brothers. And that's my family, my true family. So they didn't believe in him. They mocked him. They scoffed him until something happened. He was crucified, dead, and buried. And on the third day, he rose again from the dead. One of those who is explicitly named as an eyewitness of the resurrection is his half-brother, James. James is listed first in these lists of his brothers, so we assume James is probably the oldest after Jesus. So, yes, Joseph and Mary had other children after Jesus. Joseph wasn't involved physically in the birth of Jesus. No, she was born of the Virgin Mary, as Isaiah had pre, um, predicted, had seen in advance. But they did have other children. There's no doctrine of the perpetual virginity of, Jesus, of Mary that we see in Roman Catholicism. Uh, that, that's not taught in Scripture. No, it's okay. But, yeah, they had children. And he had half-brothers. And here's the key thing. They didn't believe in him until that resurrection happened. And Jesus made a personal appearance to James. And all indications are that he fell at his feet and he said, my Lord and my God. Forgive me. Oh, I take back all that stuff I said, all that mockery, all that. And apparently um, his brother Jude was in the same boat that he now also began to believe in him. And so we see them in the upper room. Uh, after the resurrection on the, upper, on the day of Pentecost, they're in the upper room and they're, want, they're waiting with the apostles for what's going to happen. That's the Jude that's writing this letter. It's because of humility and deep, deep contrition for his role before he was a believer, that he doesn't just say, and I'm the half-brother of Jesus. I'm not worthy of saying that. I'll say it indirectly. I am the brother of James. And everybody knew James's con connection with Jesus because he was the more prominent. He was so prominent, in fact, that you could address a letter. James the Just is how he was known, according to Josephus and other historians of the day. James the Just, Jerusalem. No zip, no street address. It would get to him. He was that well-known. So Jude can identify himself as just his half-brother. All right, well, that's whom it's from. Uh, to whom is this letter written? To those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. Called, loved, kept. That's to whom it's called. That's why we call it a general epistle. It's not written to a particular church and a particular place that we know of. It's written generally to those who believe in the Lord Jesus and because they believe in the Lord Jesus, because they have repented of their sins and put their trust in Jesus, Jude knows I can tell you three things about yourself that you may easily forget, but you need to remember constantly. You are called. God causes all things to work together for good to those who are called according to his purpose. Romans 8, 28, who are called. We have been called who believe in Jesus. We may think, well, you know, I figured it out and I put my trust in Jesus and aren't I something special that now I'm a believer. No, you wouldn't have put your trust in Jesus. You wouldn't have called out to him if he had not previously called you effectually and said to you, in effect, Lazarus, come out. 
you're all wrapped up in your grave clothes in the grave. Lazarus, come out. Lazarus wasn't making a great decision for Jesus to hop out of the grave, you know, all wrapped up in his grave clothes. No, he was compelled by the power of the Son of God who said, Lazarus, come out. So when the Lord Jesus said, David, come to me, I came to him. Kicking and screaming? Well, that's how C.S. Lewis described his conversion, kicking and screaming, the most reluctant convert in all of England. But actually, he wouldn't have said that a few years later. He would have recognized that, no, I can't imagine anything better than to come to Jesus because the lights went on. All of a sudden, I could see which I, what I had been blind to previously, and now I want to put my trust in Jesus, where earlier I had been shaking my fist in the face of Jesus and had not wanted to have anything to do with him. The amazing transformation that comes from a new heart that the Holy Spirit puts into us and takes out that heart of stone that did not believe before. That's what happened with, with Jude here. And that's what happened with Jude's audience as well. You're called, you are loved. That word's going to come up again throughout this letter. In fact, it helps us see the structure of the letter, beloved. So we see that uh, when he starts to talk in verse 3, he says, Beloved, although I was... So he's got the beloved there. And then in verse 17, he says it again, beloved. That helps us see he's moving from one part of his letter to a second part of his letter. It may be. I, mean, we may, I may lose you. You may start falling asleep any moment now. i got to get something in here before that happens. If you believe in Jesus, you have turned your life over to him as your Savior and your Lord. Not because you have done that are you beloved. No, you were beloved, and that is why you did that. Because he called you. Because he worked in your life. He loves you. Why? I cannot tell you that. I do not know why he loves me. I cannot imagine why he would love me, knowing the insides of me in ways that nobody here does. Even I don't understand the full dimensions of my wretchedness, but he does and yet he loves me, and he loves you. Maybe you needed to hear that this morning. Maybe you need to remember that this morning. You may be not living in a way that you think is particularly lovable. You're not measuring up. You're not being the Christian that you ought to be. But you do remember the gospel, don't you? The gospel that God shows his love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Your father loves you, and nothing you do it's going to change that. He may not be pleased with you with some of the things that you're doing, but you can fix that by agreeing with him, Father, that was wrong for me to say that yesterday. Please forgive me and please help me as I go to my neighbor now and try to make it right. Father, I was wrong to think like that. I let my thoughts go all to pot. Please forgive me. Clean out the library room of my head and make it pure again for Jesus' sake. And he'll do it. He loves you. He loves you. You are chosen. You are loved. And you are kept for Jesus Christ. Until the very end, you will be kept. He holds on to you as you are crossing the extremely dangerous spiritual street of this world much more tightly than you hold on to him. 
He has got you by the wrist. You may say, well, no, I've got him by the hand, but he has got you much more tightly, and he will get you safely home. No one can pluck you out of his hand. So the only question for us to examine is, I need to examine myself to see whether I am in the faith. Do I truly have faith? And if so, then I need to know that I am called, I am loved, and I am kept. I'm safe. I need to remember that so I can take greater risks for the Lord Jesus because he'll hold me safe. That's great for us to know. One other point that some commentators make about that description of the wishes, and that's just kind of what it is in the first part of a letter in the ancient world. It was, you know, I wish for you grace and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. That's how Paul might put it. Grace and peace. The distinctively Gentile greeting, grace, or greetings, and then the distinctively Jewish greeting, shalom. Well, Paul combined them, grace and peace to you. Jude goes Paul one better and gives a triad of wishes for his, the recipients of his letter. You are, and, and we're going to come to that, uh, in the what it's for. What is this letter for? May mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. So from a triad of addressees who are called, loved, kept, he moves to a triad of wishes for them, wishes that they might know mercy, that they might know peace, and that they might know love in multiplied form. It's not just a little bit. I want you to know it in abundance. I want those three attributes to be multiplied to you because, and this is a final point I guess I should make uh, from the end of verse 1, when we are, call, we are called, loved, and kept, in effect, Jude is saying, and Jude is very Jewish, as we'll see going through this letter, he is saying to Gentile audience as well as Jewish audience, we are the new Israel. The new Israel is the church. The old Israel, most of which, uh, the leadership of which, has rejected my Lord Jesus, my half-brother. They've rejected him, and therefore God has turned from them Turn to the Gentiles, and he is including now in a grafted-in olive tree branches of Gentiles along with Jews, and we are the church uh, of God and the new Israel. And that's the point he makes in that letter I mentioned earlier, Galatians, his, his kind of homework letter for the Jerusalem Council. He says, uh, peace be upon the Israel of God, meaning the church. So we are the Israel of God. All of the Old Testament promises the Old Testament belonging the Gentiles did not formerly know, now we know. And thanks be to God for that. And so Jude's great wish for us is that we might know mercy more than we've ever understood it or experienced it before. That we might not just know mercy, we would know peace, that Old Testament shalom, that fullness, that great satisfaction of soul that comes from nowhere else except the one who created us, I want you to know that more than you've ever known that before. And then uh, the final part of the triad is that love might be multiplied to you. You are beloved. Remember, we just said that, but you don't understand it. You don't experience it a lot of your day. You don't get it as much. Well, I want that to be multiplied to you. That's why I'm writing you, so that mercy, peace, and love might be yours in multiplied ways, that it would be your experience at a deep heart level. So that's why I'm writing. Well, 
what are you writing about? What's the subject line of this letter? I mean, again, we got the executive summary that we need. We're men. You know, we don't have great attention spans. So can you cut to the chase, Jude? We understand who you are now. We understand who you think we are. And you, we understand why you, what you want for us. And we're grateful for that. We'd like mercy, peace, and love as well. But what's your point? And the point is given in verse 3. All right, beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. That's a pretty long subject line. Yeah, yeah, I got a little carried away. But I wanted you to understand, I was so ready to write on this subject. This is what I really wanted to write you about. This is the kind of subject that sells books. This is what makes people feel good. I wanted to give you some chicken soup for the soul, so I wanted to write about our salvation. That's what I was hoping to write about. And that would have been nice. But there was one problem. I looked out at the state of the church in the 60s of the first century after the time of Christ, and I saw a church that was in grave danger because it wasn't just Paul that had these false teachers hounding him and trying to tell his converts that they had to go back and be circumcised before they could be Christians. No, I see that too. I, Jude, see that. Peter saw that. Other people saw that, that there are false teachers who are leading you astray, and it's not salvation that you need to be concerned about at a certain point. If you go where those false teachers are taking you, it's condemnation that you need to worry about. And so I decided to write you a letter not based on our common salvation, at least not directly, but the opposite problem, the danger of condemnation that could fall to us if we fail to believe the one true gospel once and for all delivered to the saints. So not salvation, that's not my letter. My letter is about condemnation. And it's a very real danger uh, for Jude. I found it necessary. It would have been nice to write about salvation, but it's necessary to write about condemnation. Um, and so, and he's going to mention the commendation specifically in the next verse. But So I had to appeal to you to stand up for Jesus or contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Contend for the faith. So this isn't going to be a nice letter we can all get our heads around and we all get our hearts around. We can be united on salvation. Isn't that wonderful? No, this is going to be a letter about something more severe. Stand up for Jesus because that salvation that is our common salvation is in jeopardy right now because of false teaching that's introducing a different gospel and I need you to stand up for Jesus for your sake, for the sake of others, and for God's sake. Stand up for Jesus. Contend for the faith. And it is a contentious word. It's a military word. It is telling us that you're getting into a fight. And we don't want to do that. Christians fight way too much as it is. So can I give you a quick litmus test to know whether something is worth fighting about or not? Not all of you go to second. You're in different churches, so you have different fights. than Well, we don't have any fights at second, of course, but uh, you, you... you find yourself in conflict from time to time. We can find ourselves in conflict from time to time. Here's your litmus test. Here's what you need to ask yourself. Is the matter over which we are contending essential for salvation? Is this fight right now going to end people up in hell unless they get it the way we're saying they've got to get it? If it is, it is most definitely worth fighting for. It is most worth, definitely worth saying, here I stand, 
I can do no other. God help me. It is our salvation that is at stake, and not just ours, it's the salvation of others that is at stake. So stand for the faith. The faith in Jude refers not to my personal subjective faith that I exercise in a promise from God. No, the faith with the definite article is talking about the content of what I believe. It's talking about the message of our Lord Jesus Christ and the salvation that is available only in him. That's what Jude means by the faith. That's what Peter's going to mean by the faith. Um, Paul also can refer to the faith in that way as the, the content of what we believe. And that content is Jesus and the salvation that is found only in him. Think of it this way. The most important question that any human being can ask is the one that the Philippian jailer asked in Acts chapter 16. What must I do to be saved? What do I have to do to be saved? What is necessary for my salvation? That's the most important question in Scripture. It's the most important question we can ask in the midst of our conflicts. We want to understand, is this a matter over which salvation um, is going to be determined? The most important answer in all of Scripture is Paul's answer to that Philippian jailer in Acts chapter 16. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved, you and your household. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Heresy has to do with the Lord Jesus Christ, with changing the, the revelation of him that is presented in Scripture, and the requirements that we have with respect to him, the response to him that we need to make, if it affects Jesus and our response to Jesus, it's worth fighting for, has to be worth fighting for. Now, there can be other matters over which churches can disagree and, and, and have their strong convictions, and it may mean that under the authority structure of a particular church, you may not get your way, but you don't leave that church that is disagreeing about a matter that's not essential for salvation. You stay there, and you continue to try to persuade from Scripture. You keep searching the Scripture for yourself. But I can live with other people who differ, differ with me on matters that are important because they're in Scripture, but they're not essential for salvation. So that's what uh, Jude is talking about here, contending for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Once for all. It's not going to be grown or changed. This faith, this gospel message, Jude's saying, is never going to change. You're never going to get additional revelation that's going to modify this message because this message was once and for all delivered to the saints. There's not going to be any additional revelation given to a prophet named Muhammad who is going to change this Christian message. There is not going to be an additional revelation given to Joseph Smith with special glasses and looking at these uh, templates that are going to change the message of Jesus and how we are saved in him. It's not going to happen. Why? Because this message, this faith, was once for all delivered to the saints. It's not going to be changed by century upon century of oral tradition passed on by the teaching office in the Roman Catholic Church that is going to reinterpret the gospel that is given to us in the New Testament. It's not going to happen because that basic salvation message was delivered once and for all. And I need you to contend for that faith. I need you to stand up for that faith. Not in a belligerent manner, not in a nasty tone, not without being kind and humble, but nevertheless, I'll take my stand 
for Jesus. I'll stand on that. All right. Well, that's a whole lot to come from the envelope. Too bad we don't have time for the letter, but that's okay. You know, you can really get most of it from the envelope. No, we come now to the body of the letter. And if I lose my way in going further, uh, let me just help you find your way going out of this. There are two parts to the body of the letter. The letter is about contending for the faith. That's clear from verse 3. That's his purpose statement. I want you to contend for the faith, and it's through so doing that you'll experience this mercy and this peace and this love. So contend for the faith. In um, verses 4 through 16, he is going to tell us why we should contend for the faith. And in verses 17 through 25, he is going to tell us how we ought to contend for the faith. And the answer for why we are to contend for the faith, I've already alluded to. It's the condemnation of the ungodly. Because the ungodly will be condemned, that is, they will go to hell uh, if they are ungodly, and we need to avoid their fate. We need to be aware that there is false teaching, that there are those who are trying to lure us into a different gospel, and we need to stand up for the true gospel, stick with Jesus, and not go that route. Now, you want to know more about the condemnation of the ungodly? Well, great. Uh, he's going to give us three aspects of this condemnation of the, of the ungodly. The first of them is in verse 4, um, and that is the fact of the condemnation of the, just the simple fact of the condemnation of the ungodly. Verse 4, for certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Certain people have crept in unnoticed. The way Paul puts it in Acts chapter 20 is that from your own number, wolves will arise in the midst of the flock. People that you thought were brothers and sisters in Christ who will later become manifest as wolves in sheep's clothing you need to be on your guard. To the elders of the church at Ephesus, Paul says, keep watch over yourselves and over all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you an overseer. You gotta be vigilant. You gotta be watching because from your own number, they will come. They will creep in unnoticed, says Jude. And they long ago were designated for condemnation. Ungodly people, and here's what they do. Two things. They pervert the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and turn it into license. They turn it into sensuality. They turn it into doing whatever they want to do, and they say, it's grace. Hey, it's grace. Ollie, ollie, in free. There is no condemnation now in Christ Jesus. True. Romans 8.1, it's very clear. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Therefore, now here's the tricky part, therefore, We can do whatever we want and Jesus is going to let us come home to heaven because we're loved by him and nothing we ever do can change that. And so you live any old way you want to live. And you're strongly tempted to do this. You go ahead and do it and just know that God forgives you in advance. We just slipped from a very true statement of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, into heresy. Because our faith, though it is alone the instrument of our salvation, it is not alone. It will produce good works. It will transform us. And do not turn 
the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ into a license for your sensuality or into your sin. In other words, don't become an antinomian, to use a theological word, one who says that now the law of God has no value, no benefit for us. You don't need the law. Freed from the law, oh, blessed condition, now I can sin and there's no perdition. As somebody said, a hymn once said, I didn't sing the original hymn, so I didn't get the change, but you get the idea. And Paul got the idea, right? In Romans 6, we've heard him argument, arguing there before too. So, what am I saying? Shall we sin that grace may abound? Yeah, and you get an amen from these false teachers. And Paul says, not amen. Paul says, may it never be. No. Understand the true grace of God that teaches us to say no to ungodliness. Not to go the way of ungodliness, but it teaches us to say no to ungodliness, as Paul says in Titus 1. So, no to ungodliness um, is very important. So that's just the fact of the condemnation of the ungodly. And that uh, fact also um, has another part to it. There is not only perverting the grace of God into sensuality, there's also denial of our only master and sovereign Lord, Jesus Christ. Our only sovereign and Lord, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the most important part of Christianity. He's the core of Christianity. He is Christianity. And those who then deny him, we don't really need Jesus. As long as you're a good moral person and you're sincere, uh, then you'll go to heaven without a Savior. Well, yeah, you don't need a Savior if you're good, sincere. You know, what about the person in Africa who does the right thing, comes to know it just through common uh, grace and common revelation, does the right thing? Will that person go to hell? No, no, that person won't go to hell. But there is no such person. That's the whole argument of Romans chapter 1. Everybody knows that there's a God by virtue of creation all around, and there is no one righteous, no, not one. We need a Savior. We desperately need a Savior. There is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved, says Peter in uh, Acts chapter 4. So, no, we desperately need a Savior. And those who deny Jesus as our Lord and our Master um, are heretics by definition. It's, it's that fundamental litmus test question all about Jesus, and they have failed. So you may not understand the whole agenda at first, but gradually you, become, you begin to see the agenda that they're trying to change the grace that is truly a part of the Christian message and turn it into license for our sin. And they're trying to change Jesus from absolute sovereign Lord and Master to good example. And that won't work. That won't work. All right. Three Old Testament examples of it. Uh, and these three Old Testament examples are mentioned in the next three verses. I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels, well, we'll come back to them. First example is the Israelites, the unbelieving Israelites. You know, God led them all out of slavery in Egypt. He gave them all the Passover. He brought them all through the Red Sea. They all drank from that rock, which was Christ, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10. They all experienced the same thing, and yet with most of them, God was not well pleased. We get to Numbers chapter 14, and we see the great failure at Kadesh Barnea when God's people say, no, we're not going. We want to go back to Egypt. There are giants in this land. The spies have just come back and told us that. We're not going in. And because of their unbelief, God said to Caleb and Joshua, the only two of that generation that got to go in, um, 
I'm going to destroy all of them. Moses said, no, no, Lord, don't destroy them because Egypt will hear about it. And God says, okay, you're right. I won't destroy them, but they're going to wander in this wilderness for 40 days, 40 years, one year for every day that those spies went out. And the children that they were so concerned about, our children will be killed by these giants. I'm going to take all their children in, but not one of them will go in. There are Old Testament examples of the condemnation of the ungodly. Those who fought against um, God's word and God's power and God's promise were condemned. And so that's the example that's given. Second example, verse 6. And how about the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority but left their proper dwelling? He is kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day until the judgment of the great day. The angels who didn't stay with it. What is that about? Some people think that that's about Genesis chapter 6, where we're told that the sons of God began to marry the daughters of men. Sons of God, they say, is angels, daughters of men, is humans. And so we're interbreeding angels and, uh, and humans, and that creates this, this giant race, these Nephilim who are in the land. I don't think that's what Genesis 6 is talking about. That makes sense. Where else in Scripture do we have any indication that angels can have sexual relations with people? Nowhere. In fact, we're told explicitly by Jesus that we will be like the angels in the age to come, and we won't have marriage in that context. So I don't think that's what it's talking about. Sons of God is probably a reference to the godly line of Seth that has been described in Genesis chapter 5 leading up to Genesis chapter 6. And then daughters of humanity refers to those who were not of the godly line of Seth, but were from the ungodly line of Cain or or from others in the world at that time that did not share the faith of um, Yahweh, the one true and living God. So, uh, So it's talking about mixed marriages at a faith level, and these become very proud and strong men, and so they become despots, and that's the Nephilim, that's that's the powerful, and these power brokers uh, who are... Um, the, big, the big players in the ancient Near East. Well, uh, that's the second example. First example is the unbelieving Israelites. Second example, the rebellious angels. So if that's not what it is, what is it? The rebellious angels are those angels who joined Satan in his great revolt against God before Adam and Eve are ever created. We get hints of it in the Old Testament, bare hints. And we're not told a whole lot much more about it in the New Testament, except in Revelation 12, we get a glimpse into war in heaven between Michael, interestingly, Michael's mentioned there, and he's mentioned here in Jude as well, between Michael and the devil, and the devil's angels. So many, along with the devil, rebelled. And what was the result of their rebellion? Condemnation. The third example of condemnation is Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, and they serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Well, the punishment that they had of fire and brimstone became a foretaste of eternal fire, a foretaste of hell in what rained down on Sodom and Gomorrah. There are those that today are saying Sodom and Gomorrah has nothing to do with sexual sin. Sodom and Gomorrah, they look at Ezekiel 16 and they understand that it has to do with more than sexual sin. Sodom and Gomorrah were proud, they were materialistic, and they were greedy. And that's what they were judged for. Although we read in Genesis 19 and we go, yeah, no, it sounds like they wanted to have sex with other men. And so that that was something that was unnatural and it was a perversion. And so that's where the word sodomy comes from to talk about those who practiced 
sexual acts with same sex, men and men. Others, and, and I have friends who, who say this, uh, that know what Gen Genesis 19 is talking about gang rape. It's not talking about a sexual sin. Well, it does seem to have a component of that involved, but it seems to be also talking about sexual sin in Sodom and Gomorrah, and it's singled out as a, as a particularly rough sign of the judgment that is to come. But in the New Testament, right here with Jude, we understand that the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah was sexual immorality, an unnatural desire. So it seems that Jude is saying again, no, it is talking about homosexuality. And the real point behind it is, don't go there with that false teaching of it's okay for you to act on an attraction that you may have from birth. We don't know, we don't understand it, how the, com the complexities of the human uh, heart as to how you may have this attraction. We're just telling you that the Bible says to fight it and to stay against it. We ought to have the most compassion in all the world for those that are same-sex attracted, and we ought to try to understand them better and better and encourage them better and better and present Jesus to them and say, he's your hope, he's my hope, I'm a horrible sinner. But that compassion can't lead us to compromise, to changing the authority of God's word, or else we are in danger of the condemnation of the ungodly, and we don't want them to suffer that condemnation. So... Three examples from the Old Testament. All right, four reasons for, I didn't use my time very well here. All right, so well, that's okay. I'm just going to fill in the blanks, and then I'm going to make my final point. Uh, in terms of uh, the, the four reasons for the condemnation of the ungodly, here's why they are punished, not just examples of it. Um, they're published, uh, punished for three sins, and those sins are, are talked to uh, about in verse 8. Uh, they defile the flesh, they reject authority, and they blaspheme the glorious ones. They're just proud and cocky, and so they just blaspheme. And for those uh, three sins, condemnation will come. Uh, in addition to the, four, uh, the three sins, we see three sinners in verse 11. They walked in the way of Cain. They abandoned themselves for the sake of Gain and Balaam's era, so Cain, Balaam, and Korah. Those are all allusions to Old Testament events at the time of the Exodus or even earlier with Cain. And so you get an example of each one and the sin that's in each one. The envy and the murder of Cain. The greed of Balaam. The rebellion of Korah. All right, and then there are five metaphors, and I'll let you look at those yourself and see, see if you can count five in verses uh, 12 to 13 uh, to see what are these hidden reefs, uh, waterless clouds, fruitless trees, wild waves, Wandering stars, five metaphors there, all pointing to the condemnation of the ungodly. And then uh, that, that final, uh, finally we have four names for these folks. It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly, as one name he calls them, ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against them. In addition to ungodly, we have grumblers, malcontents, loudmouth boasters. I have a great joke for loudmouth boasters, but you will not hear it today because we do not have the time. All right, so the second part, maybe this is the most important part. Well, no, I can't say that because then I really will look like I've blown it, but I have blown it. All right. How to contend for the faith. 
It's not about the condemnation of the ungodly. It's about the continuation of the godly. And how do you contend for the faith? Three ways. Vigilance over yourself. Be sober, be vigilant, be careful. Watch over yourselves. Watch yourself to make sure that you're not slipping away from the Lord Jesus into a different gospel, away from the true grace of God into an excuse for your sin. Don't do that. Watch yourself carefully. And then second reason, verses 22 and 23, uh, discipline of others. You have a responsibility not just for yourself, but also for others. So have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire and to others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. Final reason, how to contend for the faith in order to have the continuation of the godly, the power of God. The letter ends in this fabulous way. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, now, and forever. That's not a benediction. It's not a blessing to you. It's an ascription of glory to God for his incredible power. So this last part has a human dimension and a um, divine dimension. For the human dimension, and I hope you'll do this in your study questions and your further reflection afterward, the key word, mercy. Mercy. We need to grab mercy for ourselves. We need to give mercy to others. We need to receive mercy and dispense mercy. Mercy, mercy, mercy to ourselves and to others. And then with the divine dimension, power. Who's going to hold me and keep me? Only God. To him who is able to present you before his throne. I apologize for going over. I apologize for saying too much about the envelope and not about the letter. I apologize for a lot, but I don't apologize for this. You today need to contend for the faith. Do not think that it's, no, it's no big deal. We can all just make nice. No. Contend for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. Why? Because the result can be condemnation for people who follow that false teaching if you don't speak up. And how? By the mercy that God extends to us for ourselves and for others and by the power of God. Let's pray. Oh, Father, so aware of my limitations and my shortcomings. I need mercy. Please grant it. And I'm so grateful for your power which alone gives me hope of making it all the way home because I'm kept by you for your son. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.